in your Bibles to 1 Timothy as we make our way through the epistles of Paul. And if you need a Bible tonight to follow along with us, just lift up your hand and the ushers will bring you a Bible so that you can follow along with us in our Bible study. So we're in 1 Timothy tonight. As we come to 1 Timothy, we begin studying a new subsection of the New Testament that is called the Pastoral Epistles. And the reason that they're called that is not because they are exclusively written for pastors, but rather it's because they were written to pastors. Timothy, who was one of Paul's pupils, one of his students, one of those that he raised up and discipled and then sent out in the ministry, these letters were addressed to him, but they concerned the church. Also Titus. So the three pastoral epistles that we have in the New Testament are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Now the fact that they are in the Bible for you and I to observe and look at and study is the clear indication that they aren't just for pastors, but that they are for Christians. And it's true that there are concepts and principles that are explored and seen in these letters that are useful for people that are involved in ministry, that have spiritual oversight, that serve in some capacity, uh, the Lord, you know. And and there are things in them that are useful uh, in that way. But regardless of where you're at in your Christian walk, the things that are contained in these epistles are useful to all of us, the things that the Holy Spirit holds up for us to see and to hear. Now, as we've been studying through the epistles of Paul, we've learned a lot about him and a lot about his ministry that he uh, had, you know, from the time that he began in Antioch and began his missionary journeys and planted churches in Asia Minor and then crossing into Europe and then revisiting those territories and then his arrest and uh, imprisonment and his trip to Rome where he ended his life. And, and, And we've kind of become familiar with Paul's ministry and the path that he took and the things that he's written. And in that exploration as we've studied his epistles, we've seen the names of many of Paul's friends and associates that he has uh, co-labored with in his ministry. And not once or twice have we seen the name Timothy listed and mentioned among those associates of Paul. And Timothy was no doubt very special to Paul. Probably Paul's favorite, the one that's closest to him. Certainly the most trusted by Paul. He wrote to the Philippians and he said that I'm sending Timothy unto you. And he said of Timothy, he said, I have no man that is like-minded who will naturally care for your estate. He said, all men seek their own and not the things of Christ Jesus. But you know the proof of him that as a son with a father, so served he with me in the faith, in the gospel. And so Timothy was special to Paul. He was his protege, if you would, his son in the faith. Now, he probably met Timothy on his first missionary journey. In Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, as he moved into the regions of Derby and Lystra, some have even suggested that he might have even stayed in the house of Timothy's mother and grandmother when Paul was in that region. And Timothy was just a young man at that time. 
And he gave his life to the Lord as Paul established the work there in that region. There, you know, you read about it in the book of Acts. But Paul left Timothy behind and he went on his way and finished the course of his journey. And and Timothy caught on fire for the Lord. So that by the time the Apostle Paul came back through the regions of Derby and Lystra, Timothy already had established a reputation as a man of God. Now, Derby and Lystra, the two cities, uh, you know, that, that, that are in that area, are 25 miles apart. And Luke tells us in the book of Acts that Timothy had established a reputation in both of those places for the name of the Lord. And so he made an impact. He was growing in the things of God. And when Paul passed through the second time, he took Timothy with him on his journey as he continued. And Timothy became a constant companion of the apostle uh, Paul in that. Now, Timothy had some very great qualities. His faithfulness that Paul brings up over and over again. His heart that was for the Lord and his sincerity that he had towards people. But he also had some very distinct weaknesses. We read of Paul talking about his oft infirmities. He was somewhat sickly, perhaps, in his physical health. And and, and Paul talks to him about that. He also seemed to lack some of the iron will that Paul himself had. He, He was a younger man that seemed to need a little bit more encouragement than Paul himself needed. And so we hear Paul constantly encouraging Timothy to stand his ground, to endure difficulties as a soldier of Christ, and and, and constantly encouraging him, even though he didn't have the same, uh, you know, strength perhaps as that of Paul, yet that didn't disqualify him for his service there. Now, the pastoral letters that we're looking at as we begin this, These are the last letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. When you conclude the study of the book of Acts, the Apostle is in the city of Rome. And he's uh, incarcerated and he's awaiting trial to stand before Caesar for the riots that had ensued in Jerusalem and, and, and all the rest and proclaiming that Christ is king and kind of a blight upon the throne of Caesar, if you would. And so he's in Rome, and he stands trial, and he's acquitted of his first trial there in Rome, and he enjoys a season of freedom before being re-arrested, where he is ultimately beheaded. Most people believe that it was by Caesar himself that Paul was ultimately martyred for his testimony of Christ. And it was during that time that he was in Rome that he wrote these epistles to the young man, Timothy. So these are the last letters that Paul wrote before going to heaven and it's fitting that he's speaking to the next generation of Christians and and to every successive generation that would follow as we hear the heart of the apostle towards the end of his time on earth the outline concerns the church chapter one of first Timothy deals with the church and its doctrine chapter two deals with the church and its disciplines Chapter 3 deals with the church and its directors. And chapters 4 through 6 deal with the church and its direction. And so Paul writes, and we read, beginning in verse 1 with his greeting, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. 
unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a typical greeting that Paul would give at the beginning of his epistles with the exception of two things. You'll notice there in verse 1 that when he speaks of himself or identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he uses the word commandment. It's typical for Paul to call himself an apostle by the will of God. But here he uses and employs a different word when talking to young Timothy. He says that I'm an apostle not only by the will of God, but also by the commandment of God. And he saw his calling not as something that was just simply optional, that he could take or leave according as it fitted his agenda or his desires best. But he looked at what God had placed before him, the commission, the duty, the calling that God had placed upon his life. And it wasn't something that he felt that there was an option of taking or leaving, but it was if God has put this before me, then this is a commandment. It's something that is imperative for me. There's no option or choice. This is what he has destined my life to be, and with everything I am, I'm going to fulfill it. He said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he said, none of these afflictions move me. Neither do I count my life dear to myself so that I can finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus. And he saw what God had given him to do as the most precious thing in all of the universe that he would have the privilege of serving the living God. And he communicates it to Timothy that it's so much more than just something that he does for fun or as a career choice, but that it's God's very command that this is the thing that he's given for me to do and I receive it joyfully. The other thing that's unique to Paul's greeting to Timothy here is that when he gives his standard blessing of grace and peace, He inserts the word mercy. He says grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. It's interesting that when writing to a pastor, a young minister, someone who's seeking to serve the Lord, he inserts this word mercy. Now we know that grace is getting what we don't deserve. And that's what, we, that's what our salvation is. None of us deserve to be saved. None of us deserve to be in right standing before God, to be under his blessing. That's pure grace that we've been saved by. It's getting what we don't deserve. But mercy is defined as not getting what we do deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve wrath, judgment, punishment, cursing, problems. You know, that's what we deserve because we're human we're screwed up you know and it's interesting that to a young pastor paul would insert the word mercy in his prayer of introduction and greeting to him why is that i believe that because or when someone is in a position of spiritual leadership whether they're young like timothy was and when i say young he was probably around 40 years old at this time that he receives this letter or whether they're old and seasoned in the faith When someone who's in a position of spiritual oversight or that has people looking up to them in the things of God, when someone sins in that position, the effects of that sin can be so much more far-reaching and do so much more damage. And Paul understood that, and he understood the weakness of Timothy, and he understood the things that come upon pastors and leaders daily, and so he prays for him, grace, 
mercy and peace. That God would show you abundant and extended mercy. Well, he segues into his first topic in verse 3 with a reminder. He says, as I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Paul reaches probably 13 years into the past to bring back to Timothy's remembrance a charge or a commission that he gave him when he, Paul, was crossing into Europe probably for the first time. And he says, when I was going from you know, Asia Minor into Macedonia, I gave you the charge that you should go to Ephesus, which was on the eastern side of the Aegean Sea, and charge some there that they teach no other doctrine, he says. And I find it interesting that the command didn't change. Thirteen years passed by, and now he's reminding Timothy, don't give up the thing that I gave you to do, even there at the very beginning. And what is that? That you hold on to or, you know, anchor down, hunker down on the doctrine of the Christian faith. And he begins talking to him about the importance of sound doctrine. Now, doctrine is nothing more than sound and correct teaching. That's what doctrine is. It's sound and correct teaching teaching and of course we're talking as it concerns the bible and the things that god has laid out in the doctrines of the christian faith and so paul begins talking about this ever important thing in the church of jesus christ of sound and correct teaching the job of a shepherd which the word pastor is another word for the name shepherd and the job of a shepherd is to do two things It's to both protect and also to feed sheep. That is, in a nutshell, what a pastor does. They protect sheep and they feed sheep. Now, Jesus called himself the good shepherd in John's gospel. He said, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep and I know them and they hear my voice and they follow me. That's what Jesus said about himself being the shepherd and about us who are his sheep. All of us, we're his sheep. But Peter, the apostle, referred to himself as an under-shepherd, talking about his role and what God had given him to do and also to all of the elders or pastors that would oversee congregations of people forever. He said that we are under-shepherds and one day we will stand before the chief shepherd. And Peter's exhortation and what Paul is telling Timothy here is that as a shepherd... Understand that the one instrument whereby you both protect and feed God's sheep, God's people, is sound doctrine. See, it's the word of God, the doctrine of God that feeds our soul and builds us up in our most holy faith and makes us strong in the things of God. It comes, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So it's the food that nourishes us as God's people, sound doctrine. But it's also the hedge that protects us. Because when we walk the narrow path that leads to life and we adhere to the doctrine of God and we don't swerve to the right hand or to the left, well, then we're protected from the enemy's territory of deception and destruction. 
And so doctrine is such an important thing for the Christian. Many Christians say, I, I don't really like doctrine. I like Jesus. I like worship and I like, you know, his pra- I like those things, but I, I don't really get into doctrine. Listen, you're making an error if you say that. Because doctrine is what gets us in the faith and it's what keeps us on the path and it's what builds up our soul. And everything in the Christian life revolves around sound or correct good teaching. It's so important in the Christian faith, and it was a constant thing for Paul. In fact, 17 times in First and Second Timothy and Titus, Paul speaks of doctrine more than any other, you know, com- compacted place in the New Testament. It, it's such an important thing for God's people to be in good doctrine and to understand and so paul writes these things and he gives timothy this charge and he says protect the doctrines of god now there are three ways basically and there's probably a thousand ways but there are three ways that paul brings up that doctrine gets corrupted see if satan can corrupt the doctrine if he can change the belief of someone It doesn't take long for him to then follow that up by getting someone to change their behavior. Because belief always affects behavior. And so Satan is always seeking to attack the doctrines of God. Because then he can corrupt God's people and he can subvert them. As Paul's going to say at the end of the chapter, they can be made shipwreck concerning the faith, you know. So how does doctrine get perverted? How does Satan seek to infiltrate the church with bad teaching, bad doctrine? Well, three ways that Paul brings up. The first one is that he loves to water it down. Notice with me there in verse 4. He tells Timothy, he says, Neither give heed to fables. Never, neither give heed to fables. The first way that the enemy loves to attack the doctrine of God is to water it down. It's seeking to replace sound teaching with emotionally moving stories. In Paul's day, this was rampant. They lived in the Greek culture, and everything in the Greek culture was in some way linked to the story of a mythological deity or a supernatural human being like Alexander the Great as he was supposed to be the offspring of the gods, you know. And it was a thing in the Grecian culture that they would hear these fables, these mythological fantasies, and it would inspire them emotionally. It would stir them up and cause them to want to excel and do great things. The same thing is true in the church of Jesus Christ both then and now. The presence of emotionally moving stories, even powerful testimonies that seek to replace the the part that God has designed sound doctrine to be. See, stories, you know, moving testimonies, all of those things, they can produce in us an emotional response. We hear them and and they move us. We, you know, we can bear witness and, and we get engaged and we join ourselves into the story and we can have a very soulic experience under those things. But those things can never touch the deepest part of us, which is our spirit. The word of God is what penetrates. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, it says that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. See, the soul is the seat of the emotions. 
You can have a soulic experience in your emotions without ever having affected the spirit at all. But the word of God pierces through the soul, affecting it, but it penetrates the spirit and it edifies us and draws us closer to God and it builds us up in our faith. And so when you replace the word of God for some emotional testimony or story, you're missing the mark. And the two byproducts of that are that, first of all, it's not going to bear lasting fruit in a person's life. And it's not going to be successful in building a healthy flock or congregation. Because emotions and moving things must be replaced by more emotions and more moving things. And eventually you get to a point where it's just not lasting. And so Paul challenging Timothy, don't give heed to fables. The second way is, he says, through endless genealogies. And the second way that, uh, uh, that people try to corrupt the word of God is not by watering it down, but by tangling it up. There's some people that always approach the Bible looking for the hidden things. Wanting to uncover the secret codes and hidden messages and to get 17 layers under the surface and find where, you know, God has put some gem in there that, that the hidden truth, they'll call it. And, and that's their approach to scripture is to get under the surface and see things in a deeper way by studying genealogies endlessly and digging through codes and numbers and every other letter and every other verse and every other word and going through and piecing things together and trying to make something of it. Now listen, understand, there are some incredible things in this book. The Bible that you hold in your hand is the most supernatural element that exists on planet Earth. The depth of what is there, the things that are hidden in there, it it would blow our minds if we could even see the beginning of it. But let me say this. Those things are not an end in that that's what we're supposed to look for. Those things are there to point us back to the surface. That if there is something there that that, that is supernatural, and believe me, I know that there is, the purpose of it is not that we get lost in those things. It's to point us back to the surface and say, you can trust the message that's on top. And see, the Bible was given to us so that we would understand the things of God. That's what he wants. He wants us to understand him. He wants us to know him. He wants us to fellowship with him. He wants us to have childlike faith. He didn't hide his attributes underneath 17 layers of fodder, but he placed them and laid them out right there for us for the taking. And anything else points right back to that, the simplicity of the doctrine. It can be understood by a child. I love the fact that I can lay on my kids' floor at night and I can communicate them the truths of God in a way that they can understand it in their seven- and eight-year-old minds and apply it to their lives and grow by it. But it can be corrupted by being tied up, tangled up in things that will leave you dry. The third thing that they do to seek to corrupt the doctrine is that they will twist it around. That is, that they will make it to be or to say something that it actually doesn't say by misinterpreting or misapplying the word. And that was the main problem that Paul was facing when he was addressing Timothy with this issue. Look with me at verse 5. He says, now the end of the commandment is charity. That word is agape, 
which is where we get our English word love, and it speaks of divine love. So when, when, you, when you see that word charity on the screen and you hear me say love, it's because that's what charity is. It means love. So he says, now the end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some, having swerved, that is that they, they, they've gone off that path, from that, some have swerved and have turned aside unto vain jangling or idle chatter is what that is. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. He says, now the end of the commandment or the end of the law, and what he means by that is the aim or the purpose or the reason for the law. And he tells us that the reason why the law of God was given, when you go into the motivation of God, so now you're, you're getting into heaven and you're peeling back the curtain of God's mind and heart, and you're looking at why God gave the law, the Ten Commandments, to man. And Paul tells us that this is the driving reason, because it was intended to do three things. It was intended to produce love, a pure conscience, and sincere faith. That that was what the law was given to do. That is what, uh, you know, that was what the law was given for. But a major area where Satan took a doctrine of God and twisted it around and made it something that it wasn't was in this arena of the purpose of God's law. Now, you know by now that Paul's greatest contention throughout his entire ministry, was a group of people known as the Judaizers. And if you've been with us as we've been going through these epistles, you know who the Judaizers are. The group of Jewish men that followed Paul from city to city and told the people after Paul left that, yeah, you can be saved by grace through faith in Christ, but you must also keep the law of Moses and be circumcised. Grace isn't enough. Jesus isn't enough. Yeah, that's a good start. But you must also now be circumcised and keep the law. And so sharp was this contention between Paul and the Judaizers that, you know, you know many battles and riots were held. There was a meeting in Jerusalem with Paul and Barnabas and the apostles over this issue of what is the place of the law? What is the intent, the purpose of the law? And that concept of the law has been used by Satan to pull people out of the path of grace and get them on this endless pursuit towards the wrong thing. See, listen. To the Judaizers, the purpose of the law was the law. The end of the law. They would write and say, now the end of the commandment is to keep the commandments. That is, that the law was given so that you could keep the law. And that is why God gave it. It's a grand test. And of course, their implication was that if you can outkeep the law over someone else, then maybe you will be declared righteous. But it was a false doctrine. It was twisted. It wasn't what the law was given to do. Paul says that the law was given to produce love, a pure conscience, and sincere faith. Now, I know what you're thinking. How in the world does the law of God produce love, a pure conscience, and sincere faith? 
Because if you're real, like me, the law of God, when applied to your life, does not produce those things. The law in my life produces guilt. It produces a wicked conscience because I see I'm a breaker of the law and hypocrisy, not sincerity. That's what the law produces in me. So, Paul, how does the law produce love, a pure conscience, and sincere faith? Well, he goes on to explain. Notice with me in verse 8. He says, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. He says that the law was not given for a righteous man. In other words, if man was righteous, or if a man is righteous, then he has absolutely no need for the law, because he's going to do what's right. If the heart of people was pure and always loving and always giving and always other-centered and not self-centered, then, then, then there is no need for the law. What would happen if tomorrow morning you woke up and all law was immediately rescinded? I think a few of us would probably take advantage of that. What would it be like when you got in your car and drove to your place of employment if there was absolutely no vehicle and traffic laws? I'm sure everybody would yield and tell everybody, no, no, go on, yeah, after you. Don't worry about that. You know, you cut me off, but I didn't see you. That's okay. And, and, and we would just, it would be so great. What, it would reveal a few things about human beings, wouldn't it, if there was no law? Last week I shared with you about the episode with my neighbor, how he had a strange man in his driveway late at night, you know, uh, and, and he called me up to, to, to you know, I'm not on time to get into the whole story, but he followed up with me this week to tell me how that turned out. And he said that he had called the cops, you know, because obviously there's a strange man in your house that's in the middle of the woods in the middle of the night, you know, and you, so you called the cops. He said it took the cops an hour and a half to show up at his house. And he said he was somewhat agitated, and, and as he was re, you know, retelling the story to me, he goes, he goes, Nick, he goes, do you know what that tells me? And I go, there's not enough cops? He goes, then I should get into crime. <laughs> That's exactly what Paul is talking about. See, the law is not made for a righteous man. If you're a righteous man, you don't need the law. But it's made for sinners, because what does the law do? The law reveals what's going on inside of us. And what the Bible teaches us is that that was why God gave the law, because that would be the first thing that would happen when man came face to face with the law. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, the Apostle Paul said this. He says, therefore... By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, the law doesn't make us righteous. The law reveals to us that we have a problem. It's like a thermometer, right? You put a thermometer in your mouth, and the thermometer will tell you that you have a temperature. 
You don't then take the thermometer and swallow it, hoping that it's going to make you better, you know. Just like an x-ray machine, you know, you, you get under there, or a CAT scan, and, and the thing takes a picture of what's going on, and it reveals what's going on inside your body. It doesn't have the power to fix it. It's there to reveal what the problem is, and that's what the law does. Paul wrote to the Galatian church, who had the biggest problem with this. They had more Judaizers and legalizers in Galatia than anywhere else. And he wrote to them in Galatians, and it's in chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, and Paul said this. He says, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. See, what the law does is it reveals sin that's going on inside of us. And then once sin is revealed, we recognize that we are separated from a holy and a righteous God. And once we realize that we're separated from a holy and a righteous God, it drives us to a Savior, someone who stood in our place and absorbed the punishment for sin on our behalf and who now extends to us grace and mercy freely, a gift. And so the law is the schoolmaster that drives us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. And do you know what happens when a person comes to Christ and their sins are forgiven? Do you know what happens? You experience pure love. The agape love of God is shed abroad in our hearts as our sin is dissipated and we recognize what God did for us. Like Lori read to us the verses of that song that we can't even begin to realize how much we owe. The price that he freely paid on our behalf. And so we experience pure love. When our sins are forgiven, our guilt is vaporized and it gives to us a pure conscience. Hebrews tells us that the law could never touch our conscience. The offering of a lamb as a sacrifice in the temple or on a feast day could atone for the sin on paper, but it could never purify the conscience. But the shedding abroad of God's love in the heart of a sinner who comes to Christ takes the guilt from sin away, and it gives to us a pure conscience. And then, because our His love is in our hearts because our consciences have been cleansed. It gives us the freedom to have sincere faith. Unfeigned faith is what he calls it. And that was the heart of God in giving the law. The reason for the law was so that it would drive us to Christ and the end or the purpose or the aim would be love and a pure conscience and sincere faith. And the law could never produce those things. But Jesus Christ can by his blood and by the power of his Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul finishes this in verse 11 by saying, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. That is the gospel. That's the gospel. The law of God properly applied, revealing our need, driving us to Christ where we're forgiven and promised eternal life. It's such a good thing that we have, that, 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 you know, that we've been given, his gospel. Now, Paul uses himself as an example of this in verses 12 to 16. He says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. He's going to begin by talking to us about what he is, but then he's going to talk to us about what he was and how God changed him from what he was to what he is. And he begins by telling us that he's a minister of the gospel of God. 
And he says that that's according to the, uh, the, 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 that it was committed to his trust. And it says, first of all there, that he enabled Paul. That Paul was enabled to be in this ministry and to have this commission, this calling from God. I believe that there are many people that are called by God, but because they feel like they're not able to do what it is that God's calling them to do, they never respond to the call that God is placing upon their life. They hear a call. They, 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 they have an unction inside to do something in his name, but they feel so inadequate. I don't know enough. I'm not strong enough. I, I don't have the courage or the right kind of personality f- to fulfill that calling. And so many people shy away from that call, and they never embrace what it is that God's doing because they think, well, I'm not able to do it. What Paul is telling us here is that he's not able either. That his enablement didn't come from himself and the qualities that he had, but that he was enabled by God. In reality, inadequacy is what qualifies a person to be used by God. See, God doesn't call the qualified when he's looking for people in his service. He qualifies the called. And that's always the way it works. He's not looking for somebody who is able. He's looking for somebody who is available. That's what God is looking for. We went went a few years ago to visit Plymouth, you know, where the pilgrims landed. And you go there and they have the museum of what it was like in the colonies and the uh, Native Americans. That's what you must call them. Uh, when you're there, and, uh, and, and you know, and they have that whole setup, and, and we walked into this furniture shop that was there at the museum where they use absolutely no power tools at all, none. Everything is done by hand. They cut down a tree, and then they turn that tree into a dresser or a wardrobe. They make all the drawers and the cuts by hand. They do everything without using a single power tool. Those guys are good. Nowadays, to make that same stuff with even better appearance, I won't say quality, but I'll say with better appearance, all you need to know how to do is use a tape measure and an on-off switch, and you can produce the same thing, but not those guys. They use the things that they have at their disposal, and they're able to take something and make it into something else. And I believe that that is the way God likes to work in the world. He likes to take tools that are seemingly inadequate, Things that would seem that they would never get the job done. And by using that type of instrument to accomplish his work, God gets the glory. Our inadequacies equal God's glory. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, You know that not many noble, not many mighty, not many you know, uh, wise are chosen from among you. He says, For God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And the base things to bring to nothing the things that are. And that brings God glory. So it isn't our skills, our abilities, our qualities that make us useful to God. You say, well then, what does? What is God looking for? Paul goes on. He says that he has enabled me for that he counted me faithful. What God is looking for is someone who is available. Someone who's willing to stand in and take the blows and week after week and day after day, be faithful in the thing that he's called them to do. That is important to God. And we see that throughout the New Testament, this element of faithfulness that's held up. And that's all God is looking for, someone who will 
fulfill and complete the calling that he's placed upon their life, and, the, and God will use that person mightily for his glory. And so Paul says, he counted me faithful, and he put me into the ministry. He said, this is what I am now. And we see what Paul is as we read these epistles and hear the testimony of the book of Acts. But where did he begin? He says in verse 13, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. Now we know that before Paul's conversion, he was employed by killing Christians, by persecuting the church, by causing people to deny the name of Jesus at sword sword point. The Bible tells us that he was consenting to the death of Stephen and that the clothes of the young men that carried him out were laid at Saul's feet, that he was a persecutor of the church. He wasted it. The moment he got saved, the Bible tells us that he was yet breathing out slaughter and threatenings against the disciples of the Lord. So filled with hatred was he. He says, this is what I was, but then he says, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. I didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't excused. God didn't look the other way, but he granted me mercy. What incredible mercy that God would take a man like me that was so opposed to him and then use me for his purposes. I found mercy. And then he says in verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying. And worthy of all acceptation. And here it is. Apparently this was a saying in Paul's day that Timothy had heard. And Paul says this is a good one. You can keep this one. Put it on the bumper stickers. Here I'm putting it in the Bible. That validates it. And here it is. He says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then he qualifies it by adding his own comment. And he says of whom I am chief. Now, you know, you can read that for a second and you can almost pass right by it and think that it's just one of those uh, pithy things that a person says to put forth a sense of false humility. Yeah, well, I'm the chief of sinners. Yeah, Paul. Do you know who you are? You're Paul. You're the apostle Paul. You're not the chief of sinners. No, no, no. This was truly the way that Paul viewed himself. It's interesting that early in his life, when he was writing to one of the churches, he wrote of himself and he said that I am the least of the apostles. That's pretty humble, isn't it? I mean, here you have all the apostles and you don't really read much about many of them, but you read a whole lot about what Paul did. But Paul writes and he says, I was the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church. A little bit later on in Paul's life, he talks of himself again and he calls himself less than the least of all saints. That's pretty humble. I mean, you know, a saint is anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. Anybody who's a Christian is a saint, biblically. And he says, I am less than the least of all saints. You say, Paul, really, you're not that bad. It's okay. But now at the end of his life, having walked with the Lord even longer, having even more of his heart and soul revealed to himself, he looks at what he was, And he looks at the greatness of God and the mercy that's been shown to him. And right before he goes to heaven, his testimony of himself changes yet again. And he calls himself the chief of sinners. An even greater step down from the least of all the saints. And I believe that Paul's 
estimation of himself was spoken in perfect sincerity. I believe that's true for each one of us. You see, the longer we walk with the Lord, the more sinful we recognize that we are. I remember when I first got saved, my wife said to me, she wasn't my wife at the time, she was just my friend. And she had been saved for two years before I came to know Christ. And one of the things that she said to me that I'll never forget, she said that sin is like an onion. She said, you peel off a layer and it reveals another layer. And that keeps happening until there's nothing left. And that's so true about our condition. You know, we get past the surface sins. I'm not cursing, I'm not drinking alcohol, I'm not smoking pot, I'm not fighting anymore. And we think, oh, I'm holy, I'm done. All right, now we can get on with this Christian thing. And all it does is reveal a new layer, a new conviction comes. Wait, selfishness is sin? Wait, you mean, you know, rebellion in my heart? You mean pride and and these things? And it just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And and it never stops. And you come to a point where you say, Lord, do you realize who I am? He says, no, I'm I'm surprised. You know, I can't believe what I'm getting here, you know. I keep looking for the pearl and it never comes, you know. He knows exactly what we are. And that's why the Bible says that angels... Look with awe into the things concerning us and it blows their mind. They, they see the face of our Father which is in heaven and they look at us and, and it short circuits the angelic mind. Why would he have mercy upon us? Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. In verse 16, how be it for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first, and here's why. Paul says, you want to know why he saved me? This is why. That in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering, that is patience, for a pattern or an example to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Listen carefully to what Paul is saying. That the reason why God saved me, the chief of sinners, is so that every man, woman, and child that lives on this planet after me would understand that if he's willing to reveal his grace to me, and make something of my life that I had wasted, then there is no one that will ever live that God is not willing to do the same thing for. It's an incredible grace. And it causes Paul to break out in doxology in verse 17. He says, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever." and ever. Amen. And I believe, I mean, here he's writing a letter, and he's going over his own life, chronicling his own journey with the Lord, and he comes to a point where he's overwhelmed with the goodness and the grace of God, and how God reached into his life, and how God saved him, and how God was using him. And then in verse 18, he gives this to Timothy. He says, this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, According to the prophecies which went before on thee, that by them, or that thou by them might war a good warfare, he says, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. 
So what he's essentially saying there is that the same charge, Timothy, that I gave to you 13 years ago when I went to Europe and you went down to Ephesus, that you should charge some that they teach no other doctrine, this same charge I am giving to you again. That you should hold faith in a pure conscience and do not let the doctrine of God become corrupted. Hold up the doctrine that's been delivered to you, son Timothy. And then he puts before Timothy's reminder, he says, the prophecies that went before on thee, that by them you might war a good warfare. And apparently at some point in Timothy's ministry, there was a word of prophecy spoken over his life. We don't know what it was, but apparently it gave some indication of his ministry and what he would do in the Lord's name and for his service. And, and, and Paul is telling Timothy, don't ever let that go, but hold up the words that God has spoken to you and keep them close to your heart because you're going to need them. I've never had anybody prophesy over me. I don't think that'd be the wildest thing ever to have someone truly speak, you know, over my life. You, you know, I'm sure you feel the same way. You know, to have that and be like, wow, you know, someone, you know, have something I heard in my physical ear. What I do have, and I believe that every one of us can have, are things that God has spoken to us. And there have been things over the years that God has spoken to my heart that he's never let leave. Promises and, you know, verses that, you know, were, were meaningful at the time, and I knew what they meant, and, and they were significant for my life and for my future. And over the years, they've come back, and they've been for me an encouragement. And, and I believe God gives us those things. Every one of us, he gives according as he knows us, so that we might hold them, that in the day of battle, we might have something. There's a great scene in the Pilgrim's Progress, that uh, allegory by John Bunyan written in the 1600s. There's a scene in that book where Pilgrim, or Christian is his name, is, is, is a prisoner in the castle of giant despair. He had gotten off the narrow path and he was taken into custody by this giant. And as he's there, he's despairing and, and giant despair is threatening to take his life and he's being tempted to take his own life and he's there for many weeks in this place of despair. And then finally, it says that as he was conversing with his companion who was there with him it says that he reached into his bosom and he found there a key that was called promise and he pulled it out and he tried the lock and it opened up the cage and they escaped you know long story very dramatic scene in the book but it, but it's a perfect picture of what paul is encouraging timothy to do right here hold on to the prophecy which was spoken over your life and hold fast to it why? So that you might fight a good war, that you might wage a good warfare. I don't know how long each of you have been in the faith, but this is a war. Do you know that yet? But there are seasons that we go through where the battle is so rough. The temptations can be so great. The opposition can be so strong. And in those times, what we have is the word of God's promise that he's given to us in totality, but also the things that he's spoken to us personally. Don't ever let those things go. They're so important as we walk through this world. Holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. And that is the danger when we get off in false doctrine, is that we endanger our faith and the purity of our conscience, which are for us a guide and a guard. And then he names names in verse 20. He says, of whom is Hymenius and Alexander. Listen, 
whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You say, Paul, that's so unloving. That you would deliver someone to Satan, first of all, but then that you would name their names publicly. That in the chronicles of eternity, these two maybe innocent people are forever held up and branded as those that have gone haywire or made shipwreck or that have blasphemed in this way. Paul, why would you do this? Why would you call these men out and deliver them to Satan? That just seems so harsh, Paul. Why would you, why would you do that? What does that mean to deliver someone unto Satan? Most likely what it means is that they were just disfellowshipped. They were put out of the congregation. And the reason why someone would be put out of a congregation in, in Paul's day and in ours too is twofold. Number one, to protect the other sheep. Because if there's someone that's propagating false doctrine or twisting scripture to make it say something that it's not supposed to say and is leading people astray from the things of God, then they've become a danger to the flock. And so they need to be put out from the flock for the sake of protecting the other people. But the second reason, which I believe in God's heart is even greater, is so that they might be restored. In Paul's day, you couldn't leave a church and just go join another church. That's what people do in our day. They just go from church to church to church to church to church to church. And, and they never feel that shame of, of actually being you know, separated from a congregation of people. In Paul's day, that would have a much greater impact. Because they would be put out from the fold. They would be segregated from the love of Christ that exists among brethren when they dwell together in unity. And the aim of that was always that they would feel ashamed and that they would repent and that they would come back into the fold. It was never to ostracize. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, there was an instance there where someone was sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul says, you need to kick that man out of the church and let him, be, let him experience Satan for a little while if that's the way he wants to live. But then by the time he wrote 2 Corinthians, Paul says, look, the guy repented, let him back in. And so the purpose of it is not to ostracize and destroy someone, but it's that they might be restored and made right and brought back and that the congregation of God would not be compromised in the process. And so Paul calls these two guys out by name. And what they did, we don't know exactly. Perhaps they were some of those Judaizers that were incognito and that came out later. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's going to talk about one of these men as have, having twisted the doctrine of the resurrection somewhat. So these guys were bad news. And Paul throws them out of the church uh, says, you know, deal with them, or, or I dealt with them, uh, you know, and hold them up in your mind as an example. Well, we were supposed to get through chapter 2 tonight, um, but we're not even going to begin chapter 2 tonight, you know. But I pray that as we close the study and the musicians can come, I pray that God would continue to reveal himself to you in the doctrines of his word. I pray that his spirit would make his word alive to you, that when you read the Bible, it wouldn't be dry and dull and just words without meaning, but that his spirit would bring it to life and that he would apply it to you personally. That You would hear his voice as, as you fellowship with him in the scripture in the quiet of the morning, in the late calm of the evening before your eyes close for the night, that God would speak to you in his word and that he would continue to lead you in all truth and that he would build you up in your most holy faith. 
and that you would come into a greater intimacy with his person, a greater experience in his presence, and that the fruit of the Holy Spirit would continue to abound in your life. I pray that God would give you many opportunities in the coming days to share your faith with those that are wounded and hurting, those that despair and lack faith and that need God, and that the light of Jesus Christ would so emanate from your life that people would sense the aroma of Christ when they're around you, and that you would experience it in ever greater measure, and that your joy would be full as you fellowship with him. In Jesus' name, let's all stand together. Mm -hmm.